Well, this is the season of Advent, and we're beginning a new series, um, which is pretty typical. I preach in series. Um, it enables me to uh, go a little deeper than I could in the context of a brief Sunday morning message, um, and it also kind of relieves the, the temptation I have to kind of try to cram everything into one message. And so um, uh, that's kind of the idea. So I preach from, from series, and uh, hopefully it'll uh, also encourage people to come back, or if they don't, they at least know what they missed. So um, so that's kind of the idea behind preaching in series, and so we're starting a new one uh, this week. But this week, um, we're going to do something that is practical. You know, sometimes Advent is uh, kind of a season we think of as a theological season. We kind of think of it for the church to kind of look inward and kind of think about um, our own relationship with, with God, but um, not so much a practical series. In fact, when I read books uh, aimed at preachers that tell you how to do things, they, they recommend making the series in January practical, you know, how to you know, get on top of your finances or things like that, uh, because the idea is that people who don't normally come to church come on Christmas Eve, um, and then you kind of uh, give them the, uh, uh, you entice them to come back in January. So that's kind of the, the logic of a lot of preaching books, but um, I've never been very logical or very good at following other people's advice. So we're going to have a practical preaching series uh, this Advent. And what I mean by that is that it will be of value to you even if you're not sure what you believe about Jesus. I, I believe, of course, that it will be of value to people who are uh, uh, part of the community of faith, people who who have put their faith in Jesus. But if you're still working that out, if you're here as a guest of somebody, somebody brought you here, or you're still trying to figure out what exactly it is you believe about Jesus, um, this will be practical to you. So um, I hope you'll, you'll appreciate it. And what it has to do with is the idea of hope. This is sometimes called the season of hope, and what we're going to find is that hope is very practical. Um, and the reason for that is because hope is the antidote to a lot of bad things. Hope is the antidote to stress and to anxiety and to depression. This is the time of year, um, maybe you, some of you feel this way too, I find myself saying, if I can just get through Christmas, I, I don't know if that's just me, but I think about, you know, there's shopping and um, there's uh, special events and then there's correspondence and then I've got uh, a job at the church that also involves a lot of Christmas. So there's special events in the church and things like that. So I find myself saying, if I can just get through Christmas, then things will kind of even out and I'll be able to run at a normal pace after Christmas. So that's that's the thing I catch myself saying. But the other day I caught myself saying something else. I was telling Margot that as I get older, the years seem to go quicker. And maybe the reason for that is I keep trying to get through things, right? If I can just make it through the next couple of weeks until Christmas, and then if I can just make it to Easter, and then if I can just make it through the summer, and if I can just make it through Christmas, and then I wonder why are the years passing by so quickly? Because I'm just trying to get through all the things that make my life stressful. A couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation with a new mom. She was crazy in love. She'd had a, she had a new baby daughter, and she was crazy. You could just see it was all over. She was so delighted by this baby. But as I talked to her more and more, I realized that she has been dealing with a lot of stress. She said, at one point she said, there's been a lot of crying. And after a minute, I realized she meant not the baby. Um, that she's, she's, you know, it, it's, she, she wouldn't trade the baby for anything, but it's been a huge adjustment. And it's been more stressful than she had, you know, in her kind of rosy scenario in her head. Um, 
that this is a real baby and it's going to be challenging you to in a lot of a lot of uh, different ways. Um, and I very uh, diplomatically kept my mouth closed and nodded my head. I wasn't going to tell her, wait, wait till next year. Or, or all the things that, that parents are tempted to say in a moment like that. I just said, like this. So she's dealing with the stress of something she loves. But it's stressful. And I think a lot of us find ourselves in that situation. There's things that bring stress to our lives, things that bring anxiety to our lives, even things that bring depression. You know, maybe it's for you, it's not parenting. Maybe, you know, you're, you've already got Christmas, you know, you're one of those people who gets Christmas done in August or something, you know, curse you. Um, but, uh, but, um, but maybe that's not your problem, but maybe you're dealing with something in your finances or your health or some other area of your life, your work, your school, something that brings you stress or causes anxiety or depression. Maybe all you do is you turn on the TV and you see news about um, nuclear drills in Hawaii for the first time since the Cold War, or whatever that was. I saw something about that. You see things about how North Korea is testing ever more powerful missile technology. And you think, you know, I thought we had kind of moved beyond the Cold War, but it seems like it's catching back up with us. Maybe, maybe it's the opioid crisis or some other type of addiction that has touched your family or maybe even your own life. Maybe there's things that bring you stress and depression and anxiety. And if they do, I want to, I want to say, first of all, I'm not a clinician, I'm not a therapist. If you think you have a problem, get help. Seriously. By God's grace, you live in a time when there are these wonder drugs called antidepressants. You know, for thousands of years, people did not have them, and by God's grace, you live in a time when they exist. So if you need help, get help. Go see a doctor. You have doctors now. You know, again, thousands of years ago, they didn't have doctors. So you have been put in a particular time. Take advantage of the things that God has provided for you. So I'm not talking about people who have a serious disorder and they need to get professional help. I'm talking about most of us, people who deal with regular, everyday sorts of problems. How can we deal with the stress, the anxiety, and the the lowercase d depression that comes with those sorts of things? And the answer is hope. The answer is hope. And I know hope has a bad rap, but we'll talk about that because I think it shouldn't. So what I want to do is I want to begin by looking at this passage from um, uh, the story of Zechariah, because Zechariah um, uh, illustrates a lot of things about hope that I think we can we can learn from. So if you've got the scriptures um, handy, um, open open up your scriptures to um, chapter one of Luke, and we're going to look at this story about um, John the Baptist or the birth of John the Baptist. Uh, Zechariah was. Uh, a priest. He was a priest, and he was the father of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a pro- prophetic figure. We're not going to hear much about him today, but he was kind of like the cop at the front of the parade. I think. Do I have a picture of this? So, all right, you, you've you've seen this before. My son was a Boy Scout, and I think we went to about 18 parades a year the whole time he was in Boy Scouts. And so I got a lot of chance to stand along the sides, and I saw that the beginning of every parade there's a cop, and. John the Baptist will be when we learn out more when we learn more about him he's kind of the cop at the beginning of the Jesus parade so so that's kind of 
what's going to happen today. We're going to hear about him. So uh, Luke tells us, when Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah or Abiah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. So he works as a priest. That's his, that's his job. In this time, there are about 20,000 priests scattered across the Holy Land, and they worked in um, uh, categories based on their ancestral uh, uh, clan, which, which clan they lived in. And uh, he's married to the daughter of a priest, uh, Elizabeth. She's from a different line. But they are both righteous in God's eyes. They're careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. And they have no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. So there's two problems here that that Zechariah is dealing with. The first of all is that, you know, it's been a long time waiting for that parade. I've got another picture. Uh, for 400 years, Israel has been in this position, right? They see it. Way back up, yeah, yeah, show the picture a little longer. So you, you've been, you've been in a parade. You know how this is, right? You can hear way down there, and maybe you can see the, the flashing red light or something, but 400 years is a long time to wait for a parade. Israel has been waiting a long time. God had promised that he would send a king. He would send a Messiah who would sort out all of the troubles in the world. But for 400 years, Israel has been under the boot of a foreign occupying power. First it was Babylon, then it was Persia, then it was Greece, and now it's Rome. The only thing that changes is what language they speak. But they're foreigners who are occupying the country. 400 years is a long time to look down the road wondering when the parade's going to arrive. But he's got another problem too. He's got another problem which is that for, for his whole life, he and Elizabeth have been doing the right thing. They've been righteous in God's eyes. They have done what they were supposed to do. They blamelessly obeyed all of the laws and commandments that they were supposed to. But they didn't have a child. They didn't have a child, despite the fact that they had done everything that God asked of them. They had, they had, it, when, when they failed, they made up for it, right? It doesn't mean that they were sinless, but it meant when they failed, they went and made the appropriate sacrifices. They did the things you were supposed to do. They had kept their part of the bargain, but from what they could tell, God had not kept his. So he's got two problems, a personal problem and then the national problem that everybody's got. 400 years is a long time to wait for a parade. And he knows there's really no hope at this point. You know, he has found himself now, he's in the position, maybe some of you have been in this position before, where you say God does great things in theory, just not actually. God does things in theory, just not in practice. I mean, yes, I believe God does all kinds of good stuff, and I've heard all the stories in the Bible, but I look at my life, I look at what's going on in the world, and I'm sorry, it's not that I don't believe in God or that I don't believe that God does good things, I just don't believe he's going to do anything that helps me. That's the place that Zechariah has found himself in. But one day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. There's about 20,000 priests uh, scattered across the Holy Land, and they served in divisions. So for two weeks of each year, they would go to the, they would go to the temple. Maybe if they lived close enough, they would, they would actually go there. Otherwise, they might plan it as a, as a, 
every few years I'm able to get down there and I can, I can go do the, the thing that my division has so I can have a role in that. And when I get there, we have um, a casting of lots. There's a lottery that lets you find out if you get to be the one who offers the incense. They burn incense twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. And they get to find out that they, he gets to find out whether or not he wins the lottery. And he does. And I wonder as I read this, I read this passage, I wonder, did God wait for the lottery or did God cause the lottery to happen? You know, there's no hint. But you know, I wonder, I just wonder if God was waiting for things to line up just perfectly, not just, you know, the great empires had come and gone, but this man's lottery was, or lot was, was cast, that God waited for perfection even down to the last deal, uh, last detail. I don't know, but maybe that's where the 400 years came from. So, Zechariah goes into the sanctuary to light the incense, and when he does, he sees an angel there. Now, I don't know what an angel looks like. I don't know how terrifying an angel is, but it would have been surprising to him um, anyway, because the way that their worship worked is that most of the worship service, you would sit in here, and I would go back behind that wall, and I would do something, and then I would come out and say, I finished, right? Nobody else goes back there but the priest who lights the incense. And so that's the situation. The people are waiting outside for the priest to come out, but the priest hasn't come out yet. No one's supposed to be back there. And so he's, you know, fussing with the equipment or whatever he's doing. And then suddenly, you know, ah, who are you? What, you know, who are you in here with me? So even if he just looked like a normal person, it would have been startling. So he's startled. But as we see, he's got plenty of reason to be startled in a moment. Um, but the first thing the angel says is, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. You know, we often joke about the way that, that the first thing angels say is they say, God, don't be afraid. And I don't know if that's because of what they look like or because we live in a world that is so consumed with fear. You know, a fear that God has not heard my prayer or that he heard it and has just decided not to do anything about it. And so I wonder the way that Luke writes this, is the fear, the fear that God is just disconnected? Or the fear you just actually saw an angel and it frightened you. I don't know. But he says, God has heard your prayer. What prayer? The prayer he just offered back in the sanctuary? The, the prayer he does as he lights the incense? Maybe, but maybe he's talking about the prayers that he and Elizabeth have been praying all these long years when they couldn't conceive a child. He says, your wife Elizabeth will give you a son and you are to name him John. You will have, and he goes on to, to describe him. So, um, you will have great joy, um, at his birth. Many will rejoice, um, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. See, he, your son John, he's the cop at the front of the parade. He's this guy, and the parade is right behind him. That's how close this is. The thing you've been waiting for your whole life. The parade is right behind him. I think, do I have that? Do I have a picture of the parade? There, where it quits being there. So somebody shows up with a flag and then a band and so forth. So he's saying, that's how close it is. You've been looking down the road a long time, but now, finally, it's here. And your son, John, is the cop at the beginning. 
And so he says, he says, um, he, he will not touch alcoholic drinks. He's, he's a prophet in the spirit of Elijah. He's the one that we've been waiting, that you all have been waiting for. Um, he's that guy. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He's going to tell them the parade is right here. But Zechariah, Zechariah says, you know, me and Elizabeth were in our 80s, whatever, whatever they were, 70. I don't know what old was in those days, you know, 50. Um, my age. Um, I don't know what it was, but he says, look, we're too old for kids. We're prayed out. Israel has been waiting four centuries. God promises a lot, but it never happens. How can I be sure that this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. And Gabriel kind of puffs up, and if he wasn't frightening before, he is now. He says, have you ever read your Bible? I'm Gabriel. I'm the guy in Daniel 9, Daniel 8. I'm that Gabriel. Get a clue. I stand in the presence of God. God sent me, me, Gabriel, here to pass this message on to you. But since you don't believe, I'm going to give you a prophetic sign. You're not going to be able to talk for the next nine months. And that's what happens. Zechariah comes out of the sanctuary. He comes out. Everybody's saying, okay, we're waiting for the blessing. You know, the priest stands up and he does this thing. And he gets out there and he goes. And for the next nine months, Zechariah doesn't say a word. And that's his prophetic sign. That's how he knows that this will come true. So he gets a nine-month personal season of hope to look forward to this child, knowing that the child is the policeman at the beginning of the parade. Hope is this thing that we don't understand and like I said it's got a bad rap you know for most of us hope is hope is the 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 vague wish you know it's getting cold here I'd sure like to go to Hawaii right that's a you know duh right that's that's what most people mean when they say hope but in Christian usage hope has a very particular meaning hope is trusting that God is who he says he is and can do everything he's promised to do. And sometimes it's hard, because sometimes it means waiting 400 years. But that's what hope is. Hope is the belief, not in a particular thing happening, but in a particular God who can make it happen, who can fulfill his promises. A couple of years ago, I was at a conference, and the speaker had this line. Um, I think I've got it up here. He said, he said, God is already doing everything in your life that you expect him to. Think that went over. You know, we talk about faith. The the disciples tell Jesus to increase their faith. Let me tell you what faith is. Hope is that thing that I'm expecting God to do. And faith is the space between my present reality and that hope. And I think for a lot of us, our hope is right here. It's, It's a millimeter from where we already are. So we have faith. I mean, we're faithful people, but our faith is so small. Jesus called his disciples little faiths. You of little faith. And it's not because they lacked faith. It was just they had no expectations. Like Zechariah, they had no expectation of God. But faith is the arena 
that God acts in. And the bigger the arena, the more God can do. So faith is a good thing. It is a good thing to have faith. Now I know that faith has a bad reputation. You've probably seen the line somewhere from Marx. Uh, Karl Marx said, religion is the opiate of the people. That people basically, they start believing in pie in the sky by and by, and then you can oppress them and put chains on them and all that stuff, right? That's what Marx said. That religion just is this, is this narcotic that people have that dulls the pain so that they don't care about their misery. Nietzsche was even stronger. Nietzsche said that of all the things people believe, hope is the worst because it prolongs the torments of man. So hope has a bad rap. But these philosophers and economists weren't the last word. See, science has spoken too, and what science tells us is that hope is good for you. Hope works. Let me tell you about an experiment that was done, and this has been replicated. Um, they found that there's something, something that psychologists use called um, best possible um, future visualization, best possible future visualization. And the idea is for 10 minutes a day, you visualize not just what you want, but what you would love to have. What, what would knock you out? What would floor you? When I was a kid, my mom would get the publisher's clearinghouse envelope in the mail. Some of you remember. In the 1970s, before it kind of went big, they would say, they would say, you could win $100,000 or a new house. And my mom would sit there staring at that thing for days. There was like all these weird stamps you had to, you had to glue in the right places and so forth. And they were hoping you would, you would uh, buy some magazines or whatever. But that's what my mom would do. And the reason is because of that house. There were six of us living in an 1100 square foot house. And she wanted a bigger house. She, you know, I'm sure she had some consumer goods she wanted too along the way. But that was what appealed to her. She had a vision for a couple of weeks every year. This vision of the best possible house for the family to live in. And what psychologists say that you can do is you can do the same thing. You can visualize your best possible future. Not just, not just next year, but 10 years from now. Where would you love to be 10 years from now? Do this for 10 minutes a day. And let me, let me see if I've got this statistic. You do that 10 minutes a day for eight weeks. And you will feel better. And, I mean, not you personally maybe, but over a group of people, you might be the outlier, but over a group of people, you know, I, sorry, I'm not, I'm not a very hopeful person, but, but, but you can find out by doing the experiment yourself. Think of the best possible future for yourself. Do that for eight weeks, and you will find that you feel better, and if you are sick, you will get better sooner than other people who have the same, um, the same illness. On average, hope is that good for you. Not only that, at the conclusion of the experiment, they stopped the experiment, and then they said, um, you know, go back to normal, do what you normally do. But you did eight weeks of visualizing your best possible future. And they came back and visited them six months later, and they found that they were still happier people. Six months later, because of this experiment they'd done for eight weeks earlier. There's another experiment where they did something. They said, if you write for 15 minutes a day, if you write down 
um, put in writing that best future. Just for 15 minutes a day, write that down. And they found, I'm sorry, 15 minutes even once. Sorry, 15 minutes even once. You do that and it increases your pain tolerance. They, you know, these are volunteers and they would basically give them some pain. And they found the ones who had written about the best possible future had as a group better pain tolerance than the people who didn't. Hope is good for you. Notwithstanding what Marx and Nietzsche had to say about it, hope is good. Hope is practical. And so that's something you can use whether you believe in Jesus or not. But if you believe in Jesus, it's even better because you're not putting your hope in your own ability to achieve that, your own likelihood of winning the publisher's clearinghouse, but in God's capability to give you what he's promised. So, what do you do with this? You should go home. You should start thinking about the best possible future. You should have hope. And if you can, take a few minutes and write it down. Get back to me in eight weeks and see if it's better for you. Because there was a germ of truth in what they said. Marx was right, it does dull the pain. And Nietzsche was right, it does prolong. But what it prolongs is your ability to get through a difficult passage. When you think you won't be able to make it, you can because you have hope. So go home. Do something, do something with this hope. I sometimes tell my kids that systems are better than goals. You know, I have a goal to make it to class tomorrow, right? My goal is to get up in time to not miss class. But if I have a system, if I buy an alarm clock and set an alarm, that's even better than having a goal, right? So systems are important. In order to achieve the things you want, it's good to have, it's good to have a system. But first, you need to know what system you need. I need a system that's going to orient me toward that best future. So put that system in place. But first, spend some time thinking through what would be the very best. Finally, let me ask the the question, what do we hope as a church? You know, this is a particularly important question in terms of revitalization. You know, I don't think our best possible future is to get through one more year. I don't think our best possible future is to pay the bills and keep paying the pastor's salary. I invite you to help me and the revitalization team dream about the best future for this church. There's 30,000 people in our zip code, the people north and south of Campbell Lake, all the way up to the airport. 30,000 people, 10,000 of them have no engagement whatsoever with any religion, not Christianity, not Buddhism, not anything. What kind of hope can they have? I heard a statistic that, that scares me, frankly. 60% of American children under 12 have never been in a church. And we have a parking lot full of them every day of the week. And I think to myself, what kind of hope do they have? Because hope is good. What is your hope for this church? What is your hope for our participation in the mission of Jesus? to bring healing to this world. You know, many of you remember Martin Luther King's speech, I Have a Dream. Imagine if that speech, he'd said, you know what, systemic racism is just too much. There is no hope. It's useless. We just have to accept this is the way it is. But he didn't do that. 
He said, I have a dream. I have a vision of a better future. And I invite you to be part of this dream. And we can have a discussion about how far along the path between where we were in 1963 and where we are now. How far along the path to that dream we are. But we're moving. And we wouldn't have if he didn't have a dream. So what is your dream for this church? And what is your dream for yourself and your family? Hope works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this season of hope. We thank you that science is now uh, learning what you have always offered to your children. Lord, it is hard to hope. It is hard to look down the street for 400 years and wonder when the parade is coming. But we know you are a trustworthy God. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us patience as well as hope. But, Lord, give us hope. Help us to have big expectations that only you can meet. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.